CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London, now on the 25th and 26th of September this year. It's such exciting news, and I am looking forward to seeing all of you guys on Podcast Row and checking out all of the exhibitors. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. Learn from leading criminologists. Hear from the families and survivors. Meet your favorite true crime podcasters. Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by crime and investigation. And I will be there all weekend with bells on and a GNT in hand. So come and join us. And remember to quote Mens Rea for your special 10% discount. Limited tickets are on sale now. You can pay in installments, and tickets are, of course, COVID-proof. For more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. I can't wait to see you all in September. Before we begin, a content warning. Please note that this episode contains references to and descriptions of suicide, which some listeners may find triggering. If you or someone you know is affected by the issues raised in this episode, please see the resources in the show notes. Help is available. You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Siobhan McLaughlin. South County Dublin is a middle-class idyll, surrounded by the other middle-class idylls of Dundrum, Blackrock and Sandyford. It's primarily a residential area with a quick 30-minute commute on public transport to the city centre, but the area also boasts a popular pub and all the little shops and conveniences you might need set around a busy crossroads. A short walk from there is the Knocknashee housing estate. Built in the 1970s, many of the houses have distinctive asymmetric slanting roofs. You know it's posh because all the houses are detached, and many of them have names rather than numbers. Today, it looks like a slightly dated but established residential area, the kind of place where a lot of people live. The kind of quiet place that, when you see it on the news, a neighbour says something along the lines of, that sort of thing just doesn't happen here. But of course, we know it does. On Tuesday the 28th of February 2006, in a house called Carn Row in the Knocknashee estate, a body was found. Siobhan Carney, who was 38, was found dead and locked in her bedroom. A cord from a vacuum cleaner was found near the body, and there were marks left on Siobhan's neck. A family member was reported to have called to the house at around a quarter to eleven that Tuesday morning. The alarm was raised shortly after this and the house was sealed off as Gardie contacted Siobhan's husband, Brian Carney, who was at work. It was his birthday that day. Brian and Siobhan had met in 1989. 
Siobhan was 21, working as a chef in the canteen at an electronic firm in Mulhuddard, where Carney worked. At the time, she lived in a flat on Burlington Road, and 31-year-old Brian lived with his toddler daughter from a previous relationship in a house in Ballantyre. His first wife had died after an illness. Eventually, Siobhan moved in with them. They did up the house and then decided to sell. Siobhan set up her own catering business in the early 90s. She had trained as a chef in the Shelburne Hotel. In addition to his work as an electrical engineer, Brian owned a music shop called Music City, which he sold in 2005. The couple got engaged in 1995, but then split up. They kept in touch on and off, however, through the course of their breakup. They'd have dinner together every few months, and they'd even gone on a cruise on the Shannon. In all that time, Brian never started another relationship. Eventually, they got back together and were married in January of 2002. Their son was born six months later. When Brian and Siobhan went on holidays to Spain that year, they had been thinking of buying a boat, but instead, the two of them had fallen in love with a boutique hotel. It was a 200-year-old merchant's mansion in the town of Solier on the island of Majorca. The guest house, called Hotel Salva, cost 2.2 million euros. It had six luxury bedrooms and a heated outdoor pool. Brian did a lot of the work on the house. It was a stunning building in a quieter part of the island, which the couple lovingly restored. Siobhan took care of the administration side of the business, but she really loved preparing food and taking care of the guests. Hotel Salva opened in January of 2003, and Siobhan's barbecues quickly became a highlight of people's stays in Solier. Siobhan began to spend the summer season in Majorca, and Brian would travel back and forth a few times during her stays. Siobhan came from a large family with six sisters and a brother, and so she also had frequent visits from them who came to keep her company and enjoy the Spanish sun. A few years later, Brian and Siobhan decided to build a second home in the large side garden that their corner plot afforded them, right next to the original home, Carn Row. They'd initially put it on the market, but had then changed their minds. When she was found dead on the floor of her bedroom, Siobhan Carney had only recently returned from Spain. She'd been planning to return to Spain in the next few weeks to begin preparations for the summer season, and she was reported to have enrolled her three-year-old son in a kindergarten there, in advance of a permanent move to the island. When Gardie arrived on the scene, Siobhan's death was initially treated as suspicious. On its face, it looked like a suicide. But this would change. It was one of Siobhan's sisters who had arrived at the house that morning, Neve. She'd found the Carney's toddler son downstairs in the house on his own. She'd gone up to Siobhan's bedroom, but the door was locked. Then Neve rang her parents, Deirdre and Owen, who came to the house. Siobhan's father broke down the door and alerted Gardie. The key to the bedroom was found on the ground, inside the bedroom, inches away from the door. It looked as if it had been pushed under the door and back into the room from the outside. After a detailed examination of the scene, Gardie changed the investigation into Siobhan's death to one of murder. Early reports were that it was thought she had been dead for several hours before she was discovered.
Gurdy imposed a two-day news blackout for the case and advised the family not to speak to the press following Siobhan's killing. It was thought that they had taken this step to try and avoid publicity in the case and repeating what had happened with Rachel O'Reilly's 18 months before. No charges had yet been brought in that case. Gurdy would not go into any further detail as to why they wanted to avoid such publicity when they lifted the blackout on Thursday. After Brian Carney arrived to Carn Row and spoke to the Gardaí, he went to stay with his family in Dundrum while the investigation was ongoing and the house was sealed off. When the results of the post-mortem examination came in, it was determined that Siobhan had been strangled with a cord from a vacuum cleaner. The flex found near the body was sent for forensic examination. On Thursday the 2nd of March, a man was brought in for questioning by Gardy under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act. He could be held for up to 12 hours. The Irish Independent reported that he was 49 years old and was known to the victim. He'd been picked up from a house he was living at temporarily in the Dundrum area. He was released that evening. Gardy told the press that they were carrying out further inquiries and that a file would be prepared for the DPP to determine whether criminal charges would be brought. Gardy were understood to be awaiting the results of further forensic testing, and they were also interviewing friends to establish if anyone knew whether Siobhan was having any problems in her personal life. On Friday the 3rd of March, the Evening Herald newspaper was reporting that Mrs. Carney had died after having a heated argument over money with a man who was known to her. The paper also revealed that Gardy believed that Siobhan's killer had posed the body and arranged the scene in such a way as to suggest that Siobhan had died by suicide. The following day, however, the Irish Independent reported that this argument wasn't about money. Tom Brady wrote that Siobhan had decided to cut ties with someone who was described by the paper as an associate. The article continued that it was understood that Siobhan had instructed a solicitor to write to this other person the week before her death to inform them of her decision. Meanwhile, there were concerns that making out a case in this investigation might be difficult because the prime suspect was known to Siobhan and had been in her house before. The man who had been interviewed had also refused to answer a number of questions when they were put to him by Gardy during his interview with them. He had been polite throughout the interview, despite declining to answer the questions. Door-to-door inquiries were carried out in Nakhnashi and checkpoints were set up around Goatstown, in the hopes that Gardy would gather further information on who had been in the area on the morning of Siobhan's death. The next week, on Thursday the 9th of March, Gurdy were following up on information about a man who had been seen close to Siobhan's home on the day she died and his movements. This information was compared with the chief suspect's alibi, and the Evening Herald reported that Gardy believed there were a number of discrepancies between the two. They'd also received information about the movements of a car they believed the prime suspect had been using. Garda sources also said that they thought that a number of surfaces or items in the bedroom and around the house had been wiped down by Siobhan's killer to try and frustrate the gathering of forensic and trace evidence. A number of items were thought to have been removed from the property too. 
Difficulties in the crime scene, in addition to the time that had passed, meant that there were challenges mounting for Gardie to bring a case. However, they said the family could, quote, rest assured that every effort would be made to bring this man to justice, end quote. On Friday, a team of Gardie began a fingertip search of the back garden of the Naknashi house in an effort to locate further evidence in the case. It was understood that a number of new witnesses had given information to Gardie on foot of their door-knocking campaign. Two witnesses now put the man thought to be the chief suspect in the driveway of the home the morning of Siobhan's death, which was contradictory to the alibi he had given to police. The alibi had been confirmed to police by a family member of the suspect who lived in the Dundrum area. The Evening Herald reported that the suspect was thought to have gone to this house after the killing had taken place. One guard commented, quote, We're treating this as a significant development. The killer should realize that we are getting closer and closer to a breakthrough. An alibi was provided, which has come under some scrutiny in recent days. End quote. Over the weekend, funeral plans for Siobhan were made public, but announcements in the papers indicated that a rift was beginning to form between Siobhan's family and her husband. A death notice was placed by Siobhan's parents and siblings with her maiden name, McLaughlin, and without any reference to her husband, Brian. A separate notice was placed by Brian himself in a different paper. Siobhan's removal took place on Saturday the 11th of March, after a week in her parents' home in Dawkey. A picture of Siobhan with her son was placed on an easel beside her coffin. Brian Carney and his relations sat in one front pew, while the McLaughlin family sat in another. Alan O'Keefe, writing for the Sunday Independent, noted that neither family looked at each other or interacted in any way. The following day, the Requiem Mass was said at the Church of the Assumption in Dawkey. Again, the McLaughlin and the Kearney families sat on different sides of the church. The church was packed with mourners. Siobhan's three-year-old son did not attend. Siobhan was laid to rest in a private burial at the Redford Cemetery in Greystones. Floral tributes covered the new grave in a large, bright mound. The week after the funeral, Gardy travelled to Majorca and carried out a search at the Hotel Salva for evidence in the case. On the 24th of March, the Evening Herald reported that Gardy had received mobile phone records associated with the main suspect in the case, and early indications were that the signal from the phone placed this man near to Siobhan's house at the time she was killed. A detective in the case told Cormac Looney, quote, we are very pleased with the progress of the investigation. The mobile phone analysis confirm what we suspected from day one, that this man was at the Kearney house on the morning of the killing, end quote. The records also provided further backup for the witness statements, which put the man in the Kearney driveway and further disproved the alibi that the suspect had given. CCTV had been gathered to try to locate and follow the route taken by a vehicle thought to have been used by the suspect the morning of Siobhan's death. The following month, the same paper reported that Brian Carney had travelled to Majorca and that the Hotel Salva was due to reopen on the 2nd of May. It was already taking bookings for rooms in preparation for a busy summer season on the island. 
However, after the tragic death of Siobhan, bookings for the luxury rooms dropped, and it was set to sit nearly empty through the month of June in the summer of 06. By the end of May, the Evening Herald revealed that Gardy believed they had found the suspect's DNA present on the piece of the vacuum flex that had been found next to Siobhan's body, though they were still awaiting the results of further advanced DNA testing in the case. On Tuesday, the 27th of June, 2006, a man was arrested and questioned in relation to the case at Dundrum Garda Station after police were granted permission by a judge for a further interview, having shown that they had fresh evidence to put to the man. He was questioned in the station for eight hours before being released without charge. It was understood that the Gardaí would be sending their file to the DPP shortly after. The next day, the majority of staff at the Hotel Salva walked out refusing to work at the guest house, saying that they found it too difficult to return to the house now that Siobhan would no longer be there. Gardi returned to Spain a month later to question the former employees. The statements were given before a judge in a court in Palma, and Irish police were particularly interested in Siobhan's demeanour in the weeks before her death. They wanted to know if the staff knew whether or not Siobhan had been unhappy before her return to Ireland. Gardy completed their file in the case in the first week of August and sent it to the DPP, recommending that charges of murder be laid against their chief suspect. On December 10th, while still awaiting a decision by the DPP, Siobhan's family held a vigil in her memory outside her Nakhnashi home in Goatstown. It was exactly nine months since Siobhan had been found brutally murdered in her own bedroom. Her sister Neve said, quote, we are utterly distraught without Siobhan, but we are equally determined that we will not rest until the killer is brought to justice. Siobhan was the embodiment of fun, life, joy, a terrific mother, an adorable and hilarious sister and daughter, a true friend to the end, and she will never be forgotten. End quote. 200 people had gathered in the cold and wind to remember the vivacious woman. They sang hymns, brought flowers, and held up pictures of Siobhan. In January of 2007, the press spoke once again to Garda sources, who said that they were confident that charges would be forthcoming in the next few weeks. The decision was taking time because the file they had sent was exhaustive. Quote, a huge amount of work went into this investigation, and we're confident a charge will be recommended. End quote. However, on the 3rd of January, the Irish Independent reported that the DPP had directed that more investigative work was required before they would be satisfied that there was sufficient evidence against their suspect to support the charge of murder. On Tuesday, the 17th of January, 2007, after the routine adjournment of the inquest into Siobhan's death, the McLaughlin family appealed for information in the case and for Siobhan's killer to come forward. Brian Carney did not attend the short hearing. Five weeks later, the 28th of February, was a year since Siobhan had been discovered murdered in her bedroom. The McLaughlins arranged a candlelight vigil to be followed by a memorial mass in the church in Dawkey that evening. They again pleaded for information to help get justice for Siobhan. Then, 
On the morning of the 30th of May, 2007, at 10 minutes to 7 in the morning, an arrest was finally made in the case. Brian Carney was picked up by Gardee at his home, the new-build corner house next to the older family home, and was brought to Dundrum Garda Station. He was charged with his wife's murder there. After this, he was brought to Dunleary District Court, where he was remanded in custody to Cloverhill Prison for one week. His only response to the charge had been not guilty. The hearing lasted just four minutes. Carney's solicitor told the court that, in correspondence with Gardee, his client had told Gardee that he would make himself available to them, indicating that there had been ongoing communication between the police and the now accused. No application for bail was made at that time. Owen and Deirdre McLaughlin were in court for the brief hearing. They were accompanied by all of their children. Brian Carney chewed gum and did not make eye contact with his deceased wife's family. After six nights spent in jail, Carney was released on bail on Wednesday the 6th of June 2006 after bringing an appeal to the High Court sitting at Cloverhill Prison the day before. He had to hand over a hundred euros and produce an independent surety of 55,000 euros which was provided by his brother. Carney was also ordered to surrender his passport and sign on with Gardee once a week at Dundrum Station. He was served with the book of evidence in the case on Friday the 22nd of June and was returned for trial. Six months later, a date was set for that proceeding, with four weeks set aside in the court calendar, to begin in early 2008. This episode is also sponsored in part by our good friends, the mobile puzzle game Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. With Best Fiends, the fun never ends. There are literally thousands of levels to play and tons of cute characters to collect. And there's always something new going on. So if you're tired of the same old puzzle games, start playing Best Fiends. Best Fiends has something new every day. There are always new levels, events, and challenges to keep you entertained. Best Fiends engages your brain with fun puzzle levels, but it's also a casual game, so it doesn't stress you out, which is a good thing right now. At the moment, I'm working my way through the Mind Matters challenge to unlock the Sir Isaac Newt style. Maybe he can help my little one with her math homework. It's super important for me to have a change of pace in the day from my usual subject matter to something light. Best Fiends is so colourful and sweet and really ticks all the boxes in that regard for me. Don't forget that you can add me as a friend on the app by heading to settings, my friends and entering the code 19322267. Trust me, you don't want to miss out on this game. So join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This episode is sponsored in part by BetterHelp, and Men's Raya listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash men's. I adore anything that makes life easier, and BetterHelp is the perfect solution for looking after your mental health. 
what could be easier than an online portal where you can video chat, call, or text with your therapist from the comfort of your own home. And BetterHelp match you with a therapist who is tailored to your needs. And you can start online professional counseling in less than 48 hours. With their broad range of expertise, you can find the kind of therapist that may not be available in your area. And BetterHelp is available worldwide. BetterHelp is also more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash men's. That's betterhelp.com forward slash M-E-N-S and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states. Right now, BetterHelp are offering Mens Rea listeners 10% off your first month. Just visit betterhelp.com forward slash mens. And so, on Monday the 11th of February, Brian Carney appeared in court number three in the rotunda of the four courts before Mr. Justice Barry White and a jury of seven men and five women, where he entered a plea of not guilty. Patrick Gageby acted as Carney's senior counsel, with Dennis Von Buckley leading the prosecution. Before evidence was to be heard, there was a legal argument regarding the Book of Evidence. The jury were told to return on Wednesday morning for the trial to begin. Siobhan's parents, sisters and brother took their seats in the court that morning and the public, guardie and the media took up their positions there too. When Mr Justice White took to his seat in the court, he was told that a difficulty had arisen. One of the jurors, a home alarm fitter, had informed his employer that he had been selected for the case. His boss had then told the juror that his company had installed the alarm in the Carney home ten years before and had serviced the alarm a number of times. The juror had only worked there for 18 months, but Gardy had been in touch with the company in the course of their investigation into Siobhan's death. Patrick Gageby told the court that he had no problem continuing the trial with a reduced jury of 11 but Mr. Von Buckley for the prosecution said that this would be a lengthy trial in a very serious case, so it was his opinion that it was imperative they begin with a full jury to ensure its completion. Mr. Justice White agreed with the prosecution. The jury was therefore dismissed, and the proceedings would restart again the following week with a fresh jury. The prosecution was also to serve the defence with an updated book of evidence, as the previous copy contained evidence that was not to be put before the jury. The following Monday, another 12 people were chosen from the jury pool, and eight women and four men were impanelled. Dennis Von Buckley then gave his opening statement. He said it was the state's case that the defendant had strangled Siobhan with the power cord flex from a Dyson vacuum cleaner, and had then attempted to make the scene look like a suicide. After Siobhan had died, the accused had locked the bedroom door and pushed the key back into the room from the other side. Mr. Von Buckley continued that there was no evidence to suggest that Siobhan McLaughlin had been planning to take her own life. 
The court then heard from Neve McLaughlin, Siobhan's younger sister. She had called to the family home on the morning of Tuesday, the 28th of February, at 25 minutes to 10 in the morning, and let herself in with her own key. She called to the house regularly to park her car on the way to work in the city centre, and was an hour later than usual that morning. She'd overslept. Neve discovered her then three-year-old nephew was alone downstairs in the house, and went looking upstairs for Siobhan. She knocked on the master bedroom door, tried opening it, and even peered through the keyhole, but she couldn't see or hear her sister. Neve couldn't gain access to the master bedroom, and so she'd called their parents. When Owen McLaughlin arrived at Carn Row with his wife at a quarter past ten, he described making his way to the bedroom, calling Siobhan's name a number of times, and then putting his shoulder to the door and breaking it open. Inside, he found Siobhan's body. A flex from the vacuum had been pulled over the door of the ensuite bathroom and was wrapped around Siobhan's torso. Mr. McLaughlin told the court that Siobhan's body was cold and there was bruising around her neck. Owen said he didn't move her body or remove anything from the scene. Later, while in the Kearney house, Mr. McLaughlin heard the defendant tell a passing doctor that his heart was pounding and his breathing had quickened. However, Siobhan's father got no sense of emotion from Mr. Carney in that moment. He also confirmed that he hadn't seen Brian Carney crying. Then Deirdre McLaughlin, Siobhan's mother, took the stand. She told the court that she had gone to Siobhan's home that morning with her husband, and after breaking down the door, Owen had come downstairs to tell her and Neve that Siobhan was dead. Neve rang 999, but she was too distressed to explain what was going on, and so Deirdre ended up taking the phone. Mrs. McLaughlin also rang Brian Carney that morning and told him to come home. The call was very short, only 10 or 15 seconds, but Deirdre testified that she had not ended the call herself. When he arrived, she broke the news that Siobhan was dead. Deirdre hadn't told him exactly what had happened over the phone because her grandson was crying in the room. Either way, Brian had never asked. When Deirdre told him that Siobhan was dead, Carney had responded by putting his head in his hands and saying, Oh God, oh God. Deirdre's testimony continued, and she said that Siobhan had been in the process of leaving Brian, but after she'd sympathized with Brian, he'd said, quote, We were going to be together forever. End quote. After this, Owen and Neve brought the three year old over to Brian Carney's parents' home. Mrs. McLaughlin also confirmed that in 1999, Siobhan had been treated at St. John of God Psychiatric Facility as an inpatient for five days. She had been stressed with work and had what was described as a little breakdown. Siobhan had gone back to work straight away. Bridget McLaughlin testified that Siobhan had told her that the stress had actually been caused by living with her husband, Brian but Bridget confirmed under cross-examination that her sister's stay in inpatient care had happened before she and Brian had gotten back together. Bridget also said that she noticed Brian's behaviour after Siobhan's death was odd. He told her that he was sorry for her because she had also lost her husband in recent years. 
Bridget said she had only ever had two phone calls from Brian in the span of 20 years, but he had called her in 2005 to say he thought Siobhan was suffering with her nerves and had suggested that she might need to go back to John of God's for further treatment. Bridget told the court that she thought this was ridiculous and had called Siobhan right away. Siobhan had said she had no intention of going to John of God's and she'd been appalled at the suggestion. The court also heard that Siobhan had called over to Bridget's house on the 6th of February. Bridget recalled that Siobhan had seemed tired but had been in good form. She had referred Siobhan to a solicitor she'd met through work to get advices about her marital difficulties. Bridget had been aware that there was trouble in the relationship between Siobhan and Carney. Bridget said that she had received a call on the morning of the 28th of February from one of her sisters to tell her that Siobhan had died. She was so upset on her drive over to the house that she'd gotten lost. By the time she arrived, the ambulance services were already there, along with various members of the McLaughlin and Kearney families. After Siobhan's death, Bridget had visited Brian with Neve in his parents' Dundrum home. She told the court she'd found Brian very cold at this time. He'd flatly told her that Siobhan's cause of death was cardiac arrest or strangulation. She'd found the comment very odd and unsettling, telling the court she'd never forget it. In court the following day, Tuesday the 19th of February, Ashling McLaughlin recalled that while at Carn Row, after the discovery of Siobhan's body, Brian had walked into the living room and Ashling admitted to telling him to get out. Her mom had told her to stop. She had also heard Brian make the comment to Bridget that this was awful for her, after just getting over the death of her husband and so on. Ashling had witnessed Brian breathing heavily and his receiving medical treatment, but said that in the midst of this attack, Brian had stopped breathing heavily and had given a clear instruction about what toys to get for the little boy. And once this was done, Brian had resumed his laboured, heavy breathing. A paramedic who'd arrived on scene, Michael O'Reilly, gave evidence that he'd spoken to an older woman when he arrived at the house, who he later learned was the victim's mother. Deirdre had told him that her daughter had been looking for pills the night before, but there was no sign of any medication in or around the scene where Siobhan was found. He had noticed a number of photographs spread out on the carpet. There was a vacuum flex lying across Siobhan's body. Rigor mortis had set in, blood was pooling, and she was cold to the touch. Mr. O'Reilly said that he'd touched nothing and notified the guardee. John Fitzgerald, another paramedic who arrived on the fire truck, described for the court the various resuscitation equipment available to them and then told the court that he had found Siobhan's body in the room, almost resting on the edge of a wardrobe. There were marks around her neck. She was in a slightly curled-up position and had been lying on the right side of her face. He and other paramedics. Alan Finn was also on the fire rig that day and told the court that he had noticed the vacuum cord was looped in around itself. There had been nothing around Siobhan's neck when they entered the bedroom. One of Siobhan's close friends, Anne Clohessy, also gave evidence. 
Anne told the court that she had known Siobhan for eight years and didn't believe for one second that Siobhan would take her own life. She saw Siobhan two or three times a week when Ms. McLaughlin was in Dublin, and the two had met up the day before Siobhan's death at 5pm in Grafton Street, where they had a coffee together. After this, they'd gone to Anne's apartment and had dinner. Another friend of Siobhan's, Carol Summers, who had known the deceased for 20 years, testified that she had visited Dublin in 2006 while she was living in Scotland. She'd met Siobhan during this trip on the 21st of February, a week before Siobhan died. Carol said Siobhan was in great form, but she'd noticed that she wasn't wearing her wedding rings. She knew that Siobhan was having problems in her marriage, but assumed that her friend had just left them off that day. Ms. Summers had rang, had rang Siobhan on the 27th of February to check in on her too. Sergeant Charlie McConnellogue then took the stand, but not in his capacity as a Garda. He had known Siobhan for over 30 years and got a call from Bridget McLaughlin the morning that Siobhan's body was discovered. Sergeant McConnellogue arrived at the house around noon and identified himself to the officers on scene. He was brought up to the bedroom and shown Siobhan's body. He formally identified her and then went down to the kitchen where the family were gathered. Brian Carney was in the living room with his sister and at one point Charlie went into them. He observed the hyperventilating that had been described by members of the McLaughlin family. Sergeant McConnellogue had given his condolences and told Carney that detectives wanted to speak with him. Carney asked the sergeant if he thought he was fit to answer questions, and Charlie reassured Carney that they just wanted to speak with him. Later, when the accused returned, he asked Mr. McConnellogue if he could leave, and Charlie said that he didn't think that any of them was allowed to leave the house yet, not even him. Then, Charlie revealed that Brian Carney had asked him if the gardie would want to take the clothes he'd been wearing from the day of Siobhan's death as evidence. Sergeant McConnellogue said that he had been taken aback by the question. On cross-examination, Sergeant McConnellogue agreed that Mr. Carney's brother had been asked to leave the kitchen when he entered to boil a kettle. McConnellogue said that there was a lot of anger in the kitchen among the McLaughlin family and that they were all very upset. Then, Colum Ward, who worked at Kelleher's Electrical with the defendant, gave evidence that Carney was in the habit of arriving for work in Sandyford Industrial Estate between half eight and nine to delegate work to the employees. On the morning of Siobhan's death, Mr. Ward told the court that Carney had arrived somewhere between 10 to 8 and 8 a.m., which was somewhat earlier than usual. On the third day of the trial, the jury heard from a solicitor, Hugh Hannigan, who Siobhan had gone to about her marriage breakdown. He confirmed that a number of letters had been sent to Mr. Carney, and Mr. Hannigan said he'd never responded to any of the correspondence. A number of letters were sent in February, before Siobhan's death, advising Mr. Carney that Siobhan was seeking a separation and that an immediate application to the court would be made if Mr. Hannigan did not hear back from Mr. Carney. One letter in February referred to the letting of the houses in Notnashee and set out that Siobhan had not been in agreement with the arrangement that Brian had begun making to have the original family home put up for rent. A further letter sent by Courier, four days before Siobhan's death, called for an immediate trial separation. 
there was mention of the move back to Spain, and the letter stated that Siobhan felt she was under tremendous pressure in running the hotel on her own from March to October, especially as their son was older. She wasn't sure it was possible, and she was isolated over there, saying that she had single-handedly run the hotel operation for two years at that point, all while looking after their little boy. One of the letters proposed a solution for their living arrangements, suggesting that one party would move into the new-built house while the other would stay in the original home in Knocknashee. Siobhan said she was willing to return to Spain for a fixed period of time to sort out the running of the hotel if they could agree on the details of a separation agreement. On cross-examination, Mr. Hannigan confirmed that he had received a card from Siobhan around Christmas 2005, which stated that she no longer needed any legal assistance from him, which he took to mean that she and Brian had sorted out their problems. According to Claire Coughlin, writing for the Evening Herald, the letters had a sense of urgency about them, which was apparent even through the legal language and constructions. An estate agent also gave evidence, telling the court that she had been asked by Carney to make arrangements to rent out Carn Row, the original family home in the Knocknashee estate. These instructions had changed, and then the new house next door was to be rented out. The implication of the two accounts was that the rental agreements had changed because Siobhan had decided to leave Brian. The court also heard that Siobhan had called the Citizens Advice Centre in Dundrum on the 27th of February, the day before she died, where she spoke to Ms. Philomena Daly. Ms. Daly said that Siobhan had asked for an appointment to speak to someone about legal separations, which she had arranged for the 9th of March. Ms. Daly recalled that Siobhan had been hoping for an earlier appointment than that. Dr. Anthony Cooper told the court that he had called to Carn Row on the 28th of February 2006 and confirmed Siobhan's death at 11.35am that morning. She was dressed in a sweater and pyjama bottoms. The doctor said there had been speculation that this may have been a suicide, and he had passed a comment as to that. Then, details of a statement given by Brian Carney during a voluntary interview with Detective Sergeant Michael Gibbons after the discovery of Siobhan's body were heard. Carney had told Gardie that the morning his wife was killed, he had noticed that her bedroom door was locked. The night before, Siobhan and their son had come home from Siobhan's friend's house at about half eight. The defendant had put the boy to bed and slept in his room with him. They woke at 2am for the boy to go to the toilet. Carney said he noticed nothing unusual in the house at the time and heard nothing at all. They'd woken at 7am the next morning. They had breakfast and Carney put on a DVD for the little one. Then, the defendant had told Gardy he'd gone upstairs and brushed his teeth and went to go into Siobhan's room, but it was locked. He'd called out that he was leaving and, after kissing the little boy goodbye, had left for work. Carney told Gardy that he'd been shocked when Siobhan sent him a solicitor's letter asking for a divorce when they returned home from their 2005 Christmas holiday. He confided to Gardy that he'd asked Siobhan to go to counselling, but she'd refused. Carney said that the two had had separate bedrooms for some time. 
During this interview, the defendant had accepted that he, Siobhan, and his toddler were the only people present in the house that morning. But he said that he couldn't believe Siobhan had been murdered. Carney said that they never fought, he hadn't killed her, and that he'd been willing to go through the separation and divorce amicably. Detective Sergeant Gibbons also told the court that a key had been found inside Siobhan's bedroom, which was a foot to 15 inches away from the bedroom door. There was no saddleboard on the door, so there was space underneath to push something like a key under. Carney had asked if the guards wanted his clothes, and they said they did. The defendant had asked for specific clothing from the back room, but Gardee had ultimately decided not to give these clothes to Carney, and the accused left the house wearing the same clothes that day. Detective Sergeant Gibbons said that by the time police had called by Carney's parents' home that evening to collect the clothes, they'd been washed by Carney's mother. When Detective Sergeant Gibbons had arrived at Carnrow that morning, he had said a short prayer over Siobhan's body. After, he noted that there was no ligature around her neck and asked the paramedics if they had removed it. They said that they hadn't. On foot of this information and other aspects of the scene, Detective Sergeant Gibbons informed his superior that he thought the death was suspicious. The next day, court was adjourned when one of the jurors, a pregnant woman, was too ill to attend. There were worries that the trial might need to continue with a reduced jury, but in the afternoon, the court was informed that the woman had been discharged from hospital. She'd been told to rest for the rest of the day, but would be able to continue. When court resumed the next day, Friday the 22nd of February, Detective Sergeant Gibbons resumed the stand for his cross-examination by Patrick Gageby. He told the court that a large quantity of knives had been seized from the house along with various household scissors after a suggestion was made that the vacuum cord flex had been cut. Mr. Gageby put it to the detective sergeant that he had not mentioned in previous testimony that he had seen the accused crying at the house the day that Siobhan was found dead. Gibbons said he hadn't mentioned it before because his statement on the matter was quite long and it had been difficult to remember every detail of it. Gibbons was also questioned as to why there was no mention of the circumstances around the collection of clothing from Mr. Carney in his notes, and Mr. Gageby suggested that this set of events was something that Gibbons and his superior had come up with in May or June but Detective Sergeant Gibbons said that this had been a memorable incident and it had occurred, as he had testified to, earlier in the week. Detective Sergeant Gibbons was asked whether or not he had told Mr. Carney during the course of an interview at Dundrum Garda Station on the Thursday after Siobhan had died that he wasn't allowed to have his brother or solicitor present during the interview. On the stand, Gibbons admitted that Carney could have had someone with him, had the member in charge of the station allowed it at the time. It wasn't unlawful for the solicitor to come in. The guardee had not wanted anyone else present. Dennis Von Buckley for the prosecution re-examined Detective Sergeant Gibbons on this issue, and it was clarified that those being interviewed by guardee were not strictly entitled to have a solicitor present in the room at the time. Detective Garda Owen Conway testified that he had taken photographs of the scene on the 1st of March, 
They were of the ensuite and bedroom of the house and of a cable from the vacuum cleaner. The jury were shown the six photographs he had taken. Dr. Michael Norton, a forensic scientist, said he had discovered damage to the top of the door into the ensuite in the master bedroom, in the form of a shallow groove, and there was material in this spot that matched the cord that was found next to Siobhan's body. It was his opinion that the break in the cord had happened instantaneously. It had snapped. Dr. Norton's expert opinion was that the flex was in forceful contact with the door and that this was consistent with a body hanging off the door. Dr. Norton said that if Siobhan had hanged herself from the ensuite door, her neck would have had to have been six feet off the ground. He said that it was not feasible for her to have managed that herself. The door was then brought into court for the jury to see and Dr. Morton demonstrated how the cord had gone over the door with a replica of the flex. It had been looped and knotted, and it took some time for Dr. Morton to accomplish. Nicola Anderson, writing for the Irish Independent, noted that the chief state pathologist, Mary Cassidy, had stood up from the seat she had taken to wait for her turn on the stand to watch the demonstration. Dr. Morton told the court that a shorter person would have had to stand on something to reach the height required for this scenario to work. It was not possible, in his opinion, that this could have been done by Siobhan, unassisted. However, Mr. Gageby took matters into his own hands and repositioned the replica cable himself. His first attempt left the cable unanchored meaning it was hanging loose and would have slipped off the top of the door had any weight been added to one end. After some struggling, he managed to position the cable consistent with the marks left on the door and leaving the cable where it would have been four feet off the floor. After this, a mechanical engineer gave evidence. Neil Murphy carried out tests in University College Dublin to see the amount of weight a cord from a Dyson vacuum cleaner could hold. The jury were shown videotapes of the three tests Dr. Murphy carried out. The first test was with a 54 kilo weight, equal to Siobhan's weight of 120 pounds, and the cable snapped after five seconds. A 42.4 kilo weight lasted just over 10 minutes before the flex snapped, and 47.6 kilos broke the cord after 7 seconds. Dr. Murphy had also examined the cord found at the scene. It had been broken, and the engineer described the break as straight across and brittle. He estimated that the cord could have held Siobhan for no longer than between 5 and 7 seconds. If the cord had held a weight for a few minutes, the purple casing on the wires would have turned white in spots and cracked. The cords used in the tests showed obvious physical differences depending on how long they'd held the weight for. Patrick Gageby for the defence put it to the witness that, in carrying out the tests, he was not asked to look at various scenarios and said that Dr. Murphy had been, quote, carrying out scientific tests in scientific circumstances, end quote. Then, state pathologist Mary Cassidy took the stand. She had arrived at the Knocknashee house at 4pm and observed Siobhan's body lying in the bedroom. A mark around her neck and a mark on her chin were visible. 
There were three fractures to her larynx, blood in her mouth, and abrasions on her chin. According to the pathologist, the bruises above and below the ligature mark did not look as if they had come from a situation of suspension. At post-mortem, Dr. Cassidy found a complex series of marks on Siobhan's neck and three fractures, and told the court that Siobhan had died after a significant amount of force had been applied to her neck and maintained there for a period of time. She said that if Siobhan had died from hanging, that the scene had been disturbed after death, or that the ligature had been applied by a third person. It was possible that Siobhan might have been assaulted in bed and gripped around the neck, rendering her semi-conscious, and then a ligature was applied to accelerate her death. Professor Cassidy also said that while it was uncommon to see the kind of injuries Siobhan had suffered in a hanging, it wasn't impossible. Siobhan had a broken larynx, which was more commonly found in cases of manual strangulation. Mary Cassidy further explained that if Siobhan had been hanging with her feet off the ground, the cord would have broken, meaning that the pressure applied would be for just a few seconds, and this was not enough to account for the injuries Dr. Cassidy had observed. The injuries could have occurred in a low-level hanging, where the feet do not leave the floor. Mary Cassidy had therefore looked for locations in the bedroom that would have been suitable for a low-level hanging. There were two, the ensuite bedroom door and the lowest rail in the wardrobe. The clothes in the wardrobe were not disturbed, so that obviously had not been used. The chief state pathologist also commented that she would have expected to find the noose still in place had Siobhan died by suicide. It was her opinion that Siobhan had died at around 9am, but said that there was a margin of error, meaning the window was between 6am and noon on the morning of the 28th of February. No common drugs or alcohol were found in her system after death. The court then adjourned for the weekend. Everyone had stayed late to hear Professor Cassidy's evidence, with Mr Justice Barry White noting that the pathologist would have to be psychic to know whether she was available for court on Monday morning. On the 25th of February, testimony resumed with Detective Inspector Martin Cummins from Blackrock Station. He told the court that when he first arrived at the house, he and other officers were treating the scene as a suicide, but after speaking to family, hearing things being said in the house, and taking a closer look at the situation in the bedroom, he had changed his mind. At that point, he decided to ask everyone to leave the house and called in the technical bureau. Detective Inspector Cummins had requested Brian Carney's clothes, and he recalled that Mr. Carney had asked to be given a specific pair of jeans and a top from an upstairs bedroom. Gardie located these, but they were the only set of men's clothes in the room, and so they decided it was best not to hand those over. At about half past eleven that night, Cummins had called to the Carney family home and was told by Mr. Carney's mother that she had washed her son's clothes from that day as they were sweaty and soiled. She'd handed over the still wet clothing from the line outside and his boots and jacket. 
a member of the Garda Fingerprints Unit, Detective Garda Christopher O'Connell, had examined a number of items from the scene. There were no prints at all found on the vacuum cord flex, but this was not unexpected given the size of the cord. He also examined Siobhan's neck and found no fingerprints. The following day, Dr. Dorothy Ramsbottom told the court that she had examined a number of swabs taken from the crime scene. DNA material from the knots in the cord were from an unknown male source and Siobhan McLaughlin. The samples taken had been compared with Siobhan's DNA, Carney's DNA, and DNA samples provided by Siobhan's sisters. Mr. Justice Barry White asked Dr. Ramsbottom if it was possible for someone to touch the flex, but not leave any DNA, and she confirmed that this was the case. The bottom line of her evidence, as the judge put it, was that she didn't find any evidence of Brian Carney's DNA on the vacuum cord. A Garda computer expert told the court that he had examined the computer in the Carney house. It had been used the night before Siobhan died. According to Brian Carney, Siobhan had been the one to use it. She had visited the Iberian Airlines website, the Law Society website and information on free legal aid, Yahoo and Ireland Online. She'd looked up the prices of fares for two adults and a child to travel to Palma in Majorca in March. A more detailed examination of Siobhan's search history revealed that she had looked up property for sale in both Dublin and Majorca, as well as information about separation in Ireland, family law, and various solicitors' sites. Siobhan had also sent an email at a quarter to midnight on the 27th of February to her brother's partner in Italy, Alessandra Benedetti. Ms. Benedetti took the stand and listened as the email was read to her. Siobhan had wanted to thank Alessandra for doing some translating for her and updated her on the family in Ireland. Siobhan said she was busy but looking forward to seeing Alessandra and her brother Owen during their planned trip to Ireland in April of 2006. She was excited to see their kids, her nephews. Then a representative from the alarm company who serviced the Carney's home alarm told the court the system in the house had been armed at 10.50pm and then immediately switched off. A nighttime arm setting was then initialised. This was switched off at 7.37 the next morning. Sergeant John Moran testified that he had found no evidence of forced entry into the house and all the windows and doors were in good working order. On Thursday the 28th of February, the seventh day of Brian Carney's trial, Garda John Phelan gave evidence of his detailed search of the Carney family home. In the hot press behind the water heating tank, he found a diary. The writing inside was confirmed as Siobhan McLaughlin's by her sister Anne-Marie. Siobhan had been advised to keep a diary of events related to her marriage breakdown by her solicitor. In addition, wrapped in sheets and underclothing, Garda Phelan found Siobhan's passport. In a cabinet in a bedroom, the guard found 500 euro tucked in between sheets of gift wrap. The court then heard from a forensic accountant employed by the Garda Bureau of Fraud Investigation, Tony Massey. Ms. Massey said that Brian Carney had €845,000 in loans which were drawn down against the family home. 
In 2004, his monthly income was €10,000 net, but his repayments had been close to €15,300. Ms. Massey explained that normal lending criteria used by banks was that lending should be kept below 45% of net income. Mr. Carney's was at 64%, which was at the high end. However, in addition to his employment as an electrical engineer, he also owned property and had a share in a family business where he worked. And in 2004, he'd received €92,000 after expenses from letting property. Massey estimated that had the defendant liquidated all of his assets, Mr. Carney was worth €1.5 million. The accountant went on to tell Patrick Gageby that Carney's family business had made two term deposits of €500,000, indicating that the company was selling property and might have been in the process of liquidating. The defendant held a 25% share in the company, and if the company was fully liquidated, he could have received £1.35 gross of capital gains tax. The state's case concluded that day, and the jury were dismissed for the weekend, with Mr Justice Barry White pointing out that it had been that day two years ago that Siobhan Carney had died. Mr Justice White also warned the jury not to draw any early conclusions regarding their verdict and reiterated the instructions not to look at any coverage of the case in the press. When the jury filed out of the courtroom, Patrick Gageby immediately made an application for them to be discharged and for the case against Carney to be dismissed. He argued that the state had failed to make out their case, that it relied solely on circumstantial evidence and that his client could not be convicted on it. It would be legally unsound. However, Mr Justice White dismissed the application. Barry White also dismissed an application from the defence to restrict reporting of the case over the weekend to limit the news stories that the jury might be exposed to in that time. However, this was rejected, as it usually is, because the jury had been given specific instructions about avoiding media on the case. On Monday the 3rd of March, Dominic McGinn Senior Counsel, who was working alongside Dennis Von Buckley, gave the closing speech for the prosecution. Mr McGinn said that the prospect of splitting with Siobhan did not suit Brian Carney financially. The defendant had wanted to sell one of the houses on the Nocknashi estate, but if Siobhan left and moved into one, this would not be an option and Brian would have to work out how to reduce his debt in some other way. The fact Siobhan had secreted a diary and her passport away, taken with the multiple letters sent to Carney by Siobhan's solicitors, indicated the seriousness with which Siobhan was pursuing the issue of a separation. Siobhan was making plans for the future and was looking forward to visits and trips, and was not suicidal. And the jury had heard that scientific evidence showed that Siobhan had not killed herself. Mr. McGinn continued that from the evidence presented in the house, the inference could be drawn that Siobhan had been killed and someone, Carney, had then attempted to make the scene look like she had completed suicide. The defendant had admitted that he, his three-year-old and Siobhan had been the only people present in the house that night. 
After this, the defense gave its closing statement. They had presented no evidence in the case whatsoever. Counsel said that the jury needed to employ caution in this case and also to pay attention to what was missing from the state's case against his client. There was no history of violence in the relationship, no record of threats or of alcohol abuse. There was no question of jealousy or a custody dispute. There was a lot of emotion in the evidence that they had heard from members of Siobhan's family, and the jury must be careful of this too. The prosecution's case was that Carney had tried to make it look as if Siobhan had killed herself, and Mr. Gageby continued, quote, If this is what the man did, why isn't he, on the day and the days after, spinning a story, end quote, that would support his contrivance? It was the defense's contention that there was evidence presented in the court which was consistent with a low-level hanging and the vacuum cord flex breaking due to weight after a period of time. But even then, the jury was not there to decide whether Siobhan had died by suicide or whether Brian Carney had killed her. They were there to decide guilty or not guilty, beyond a reasonable doubt. Mr. Justice White charged the jury on the 4th of March. Twice during his summary of the evidence, Justice White referred to the victim as Rachel. He apologized for his slip. It wasn't the first nor the last time that Siobhan and Rachel O'Reilly would be mentioned in the same sentence. The jury of eight women and four men began their deliberations at half past three that day. That evening, they were sent to a hotel and given strict instructions that deliberations were over for the day. The jury resumed their discussions again in the morning, and after five hours and twenty-four minutes of deliberations, at a quarter to four, they returned with a guilty verdict. Twenty minutes before, they had been instructed by the judge that he would accept a majority verdict, and that's what they came back with. Brian Carney was guilty of murdering Siobhan McLaughlin by a majority of 11 to 1. The McLaughlins wept and hugged one another as the decision sunk in. Carney made no reaction. His daughter, who sat next to him, turned into his shoulder and began to cry. She began to shake with her sobs when her father was asked to stand for sentencing. Barry White handed down the mandatory life sentence. In response, Carney almost imperceptibly nodded. He'd known what was coming. An application was made by the prosecution to allow the McLaughlins to make a victim impact statement, but unusually, this was denied by Justice White. Carney was led from the court and escorted to a prison van to begin his sentence in Wheatfield Prison. The McLaughlin family clapped as the van drove away from the back of the forecourts. Outside, while other family members retreated from the media scrum, Ashling McLaughlin delivered a statement on behalf of the entire family, saying that while their lives were utterly destroyed by Siobhan's death, Siobhan had now got justice. She said, quote, We are so blessed to have known and to have had someone as special as Shawnee in our lives, but we miss her every hour of every day, and the unbearable longing to see her, to hold her and to protect her, never leaves you, even though you know it's too late, end quote. Ashling concluded by thanking all the guardie who had worked on the case. 
Kearney and his legal team lodged their appeal with the court, and on Tuesday, the 28th of July, 2009, the application was heard before the three-judge panel of the Court of Criminal Appeal. It was argued that the case against Brian Kearney was based entirely on circumstantial evidence and was manifestly unsafe. There was no primary evidence against Brian Kearney, only inference, and only one solid fact that underlied any of those inferences. This was that the master bedroom door had been locked that morning. They also argued it was possible that Siobhan had been killed sometime between when the alarm on the house had been deactivated that morning and when she was discovered at half past nine, given that the time of death had been placed at around 9am. Brian Carney had been elsewhere for the bulk of that time. It was argued that the prosecution had not excluded the possibility that someone else could have entered the house and killed Siobhan. Additionally, Siobhan's diary should not have been put before the jury. Michael O'Higgins for the applicant said that even though its contents was not disclosed, the presentation of the diary and its concealment in the house had been overly prejudicial as it led the jury to speculate about its contents. The entire case against his client, argued O'Higgins, was nothing more than a quote, hodgepodge of suspicions, end quote. The appeal hearing was attended by the entire McLaughlin family, Siobhan's parents, her six sisters and her brother. Again, Brian Carney did not look in their direction. Brian's older daughter also attended and sat close to her father, though a prison guard was stationed between them this time. She was there with Carney's father and brother. The following day, the appeal was dismissed. The court later published their decision, which found that the circumstantial evidence in the case was valid, and rather than being poor quality, was in fact very convincing. The decision continued, quote, Accepting as the defence now does that Siobhan Carney did not commit suicide, this appeal is speculating that some unknown intruder entered this private dwelling, murdered Siobhan Carney, did not steal or remove any belongings, came and went unseen at a busy time of the morning and contrived to make the murder look like a suicide. The possibility is so remote and unlikely as to be off any scale of either probability or possibility. End quote. The decision to allow the diary in was also proper. Its existence and the fact it was hidden was relevant to what was going on in Siobhan's life before she was killed. The McLaughlins were overcome and gave voice to their pleasure with the decision with shouts of joy. Then they clung to one another, crying with relief. Carney, however, gave no reaction to the decision. His daughter leaned over to him and said sorry. As Carney was escorted from the courtroom by prison guards, Owen Jr., again overcome, yelled out, quote, Back in your cage, good riddance. End quote. In January of 2012, Carney was refused permission to bring his appeal to the Supreme Court on a point of law. He was told no point of law existed in his argument. Seven years later, in May of 2019, Carney had been refused applications for parole on two occasions. But Bridget McLaughlin told RTE Radio that the parole board had recommended two outside visits with his family in neutral venues. 
it was an indication that the parole board were prepared to begin the process of re-socialization and reintegration for Brian Carney. Bridget told the radio presenter Sean O'Rourke that she was horrified when she heard this, and that her family had not been consulted in relation to parole. They'd written letters every time he appeared before the parole board. She later said, quote, This was not a crime of passion. This was premeditated. He staged the scene. He lied and lied. She was throttled and garroted in her bedroom. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. Just a little bit of housekeeping, guys. Firstly, please accept my apology for the tardiness of this episode. I'm really behind now at this stage, and I'm doing my best to keep up with episodes. And so, to that end, I'm actually going to move the published date to Mondays from now on instead of Sundays, which will give me the whole weekend to work on getting things out on time for you. Thank you all so very much for your patience with me. I know you know exactly what it's like. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Kevin Tiernan, Gordon Brown, Anita Boyle, Ed, Leah Brown, Hilary Fallon, and Tina Green. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going and, along with my undying love for helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes as well as nifty merch. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Special thanks also to Isla McGlynn, who sent me a lovely note and a donation via PayPal. It was an amazing surprise and I appreciate it so very much. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, Best Fiends and BetterHelp. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is Song: The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, guys, don't do anything I wouldn't do. She had visited the Iberian... Iberian. She had visited the Iberian Airlines website.